I promise to tell the whole truth, the truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Whenever we hear someone take this oath, we're reminded that the truth still means something. It means something in a legal sense here in our country. There are objective facts in a court case. There are lies and there are truths. And the goal of our legal system is to uncover the truth, to establish the facts. And to deliver justice is to deliver truth. That's, that's what a verdict is. It's to deliver the truth. Injustice is when lies prevail, when truth is covered up. So even though we live in a world of untruth, truth still means something. It means something in a legal sense. Even though our society supports this idea of my truth, the notion that uh, truth can be whatever you feel it is from within, society as a whole, we, we still collectively believe there is an objective truth that needs to be uncovered in a court of law. And of course, there's some cognitive dissonance here, right? There's a there's an inconsistent logic. Uh, why, why can truth be objective in the facts of a case uh, and not objective in how you live your life? Well, the simple answer is this. Sin. Sin blinds and deceives. We often love our sin more than we love the truth of God's word. We're often like Pilate. Truth is only truth when it's convenient for us. Uh, As we famously see in John 18, uh, Pilate is really the first moral relativist. He says, what is truth when he responds to Jesus? And throughout the gospel of John, we see time and time again that truth matters because Jesus Christ is the truth incarnate. And as John bears witness to the truth, to the truth that is the logos, that is the word, that is Jesus Christ, as John bears witness to the truth, you and I are called to bear witness to that same truth in a dying world. And as we will see this evening, when God speaks to us in the ninth word, he calls us to testify. He calls us to testify in a legal sense. He calls us to bear witness to the truth, capital T, truth. Jesus Christ himself incarnate. We as believers are called to be truth tellers because God himself is truth. John Calvin reminds us that the ninth word has a particular focus. In this command, God is not simply saying, don't lie. No, it's more specific than that. God commands us not to bear false witness against our neighbor, as we see in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. So this command is focused on telling the truth in a context of a court. And so John Calvin notes uh, that the, the original Hebrew is better rendered, do not answer as a false witness against thy neighbor. Do not answer as a false witness against thy neighbor. In other words, 
don't go to court and commit perjury. Don't bear false witness uh, and testify falsely. And according to Israel's case law, what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 19 is that um, is that the ramifications of bearing false witness were that you received the very verdict you sought for the accused. So God takes perjury very seriously. God takes uh, false accusations very seriously. And God despises when we purposefully distort the truth to assault or oppress our neighbor. God is angered when we perpetuate false narratives about other people for our own gain. We read this in Zechariah chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, when Yahweh says this, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate declares the Lord. And because God hates false testimony, because God hates false, uh, bearing false witness, he gives us checks and balances for establishing the truth when there are conflicting narratives, when there's conflicting stories, when the truth is obscured, when it's elusive. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, that we should not hear a charge against an elder unless there are two or three witnesses. And the principle can be applied to any believer. And that's uh, what we see when Jesus gives us instructions for how to do conflict resolution in Matthew chapter 18. Right, when you rebuke someone, if they don't listen to you the first time, Jesus says, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so we love our neighbor. We love our neighbor when we live out these checks and balances. The ninth word is part of the second table of the moral law. Uh, And if you've been following along in this series, you remember that Jesus summarizes the moral law in Matthew 22 as number one, love God, number two, love neighbor. And those are the two tables of the moral law. Right? The first four commandments are love God. The, the, the last six are love neighbor. They're directed to our neighbor. And so from our love for God flows our love for neighbor. Right? When we love God who is truth, we will love safeguarding the truth for the well-being of others. God wants us to safeguard truth. And this is because God himself is truth by nature and he cannot lie. We read in Numbers 23 verse 19 that God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. And so as God's God's creatures, as those who are made in his image, uh, when, when we are called to be imitators of him, when we are called to be imitators of Christ, It means despising falsehood as God despises falsehood. So the ninth word means that we must not give false testimony against someone else. But as we've seen with 
God's moral law, the scope of, of each command is much wider than we might think at first. The ninth word means that we must speak the truth about God and about our neighbor, and this means that lying, that slander, that gossip, that deceit, that, that all those things are sinful. Now, is there ever an instance where God honors deceit or where deceit honors God? How do we understand the many passages in Scripture that might seem to, to portray deceit in a positive light? Right? We see throughout the Old Testament that deceit is a very dominant motif. Uh, there's many stories, many narratives that talk about uh, deception. Right? Joseph tells his brothers, he encourages them to deceive the Egyptians, to tell the Egyptians uh, that they are um, keepers of the flock rather than shepherds because being a shepherd was an abomination in Egypt. Jacob the deceiver tricks his father Isaac into blessing him right? instead of blessing Esau. Ehud the judge and major Christ type In the book of Judges, he deceives the king, Eglon, and he delivers a message, uh, which is a message of judgment from God himself. Jael, a great hero in the Old Testament, she deceives Sisera into fleeing into her tent, and she drives um, a tent peg through his temple. And I could go on. There's there's many examples in the Old Testament that illustrate that deception is a a dominant motif. And so how do we, how do we handle uh, these passages? How do we address them? Is there, is there a sense in which deceit can ever honor the Lord? Uh, does the lack of Scripture's commentary on these passages mean something? Well, I want to give you a basic framework, and that is uh, this, that, that when we are faced with an ethical dilemma, meaning there are two competing ethical claims, right? Let's say telling the truth and preserving life, the ninth and the sixth word. When you are faced with this ethical dilemma, you you must carefully weigh what hangs in the balance. And when it comes to the question of human life, the Bible presents a picture that says preserving life can warrant deception. I'm going to talk about two specific examples very briefly that are the the most compelling biblical examples that demonstrate this. And those two examples are Rahab and the Hebrew midwives. Well, firstly, Rahab, uh, the Canaanite, we find her listed in the famous Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, and she is among the great cloud of witnesses who have finished the race. And this is what we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. We read, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So what we find here is that the author of Hebrews specifically commends Rahab on this friendly Treatment, this friendly welcome of the spies. So, what is this? What is this friendly welcome? Well, if you look back to Joshua 
chapter two, you find that Rahab welcomes the spies into her home and then saves their life. She deceives the king's men who come and say, where are the Israelite spies? And on the basis of God's electing grace, Rahab the Gentile is grafted in to the people of God. And what we find in Hebrews 11 is uh, this championing of her good works as evidence of the fruit of her faith. Well, secondly, the second example is uh, from Exodus chapter one, and this is the story of the Hebrew midwives. In Exodus chapter one, we find that uh, the evil Egyptian king says, all the male Israelite children must be put to death. So this is a, this is a very wicked, evil edict. And in Exodus chapter one, the text says that the, Hebrews, the, the, the Hebrew midwives feared God. They feared God and uh, what that meant was disobeying the evil command and allowing the children to live. And when the Egyptian king summons them in and, and he questions them, uh, the Hebrew midwives deceive the king. Right? They, they say the, the Israelite Women are too vigorous. They give birth too quickly. We're not able to make it there in time. And here's what we see in Exodus 1, verse 20. We see because of this, God uh, dealt well with the midwives. That's what the text says. God dealt well with the midwives. And it also tells us that the midwives feared God and, and so that God gave them families. So what this tells us is that biblically speaking, when we are faced with an ethical dilemma where human life is at stake, deception can become a virtue. And properly speaking, in these instances, uh, deception is not a lie. As Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, once said about Rahab's lie, He said, therefore, it is improperly called a lie. It is rather a virtue and remarkable prudence by which the fury of Satan is hindered and the honor, life, and interests of others are served as well. Corey Ten Boom is a more recent example of what it means to rightly order competing ethical demands, right? She was a devout Christian who lived... Uh, during the, uh, the period of World War II and she became willing uh, to deceive the Nazi regime by actively hiding Jews. So she is a courageous example of faith in the face of tyranny and I would commend her biography to you. It's called The Hiding Place. It's a, it's a fantastic read. So in sum, there are extremely limited Circumstances in which a Christian may not speak truthfully, but those are rare and extremely limited. And we must also understand that throughout the Bible, uh, the battle for truth is entirely spiritual. Truth telling in the Bible is a cosmic struggle, right? Satan is called the father of lies. He is the great deceiver. He thrives on violating this commandment. He seeks to deceive us. He seeks to accuse us, to lie to us. 
And he capitalizes on untruth. He capitalizes on half-truth. Satan has been twisting God's truth since the garden when he said, did God really say? And Christ, as the one who is truth, has come into the world to destroy the deceiver. And if we trust in the one who is true and faithful, uh, we find protection from the assaults of hell. We find protection from the father of lies in the refuge who is the truth himself. So what does this all mean for us? What, what does truth-telling mean as the people of God? Well, I just have uh, four points for you to consider this evening. And the first one is this. The church of Jesus Christ is the church when she proclaims the truth. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the church when she proclaims the truth. The classic Reformed understanding of a true church says that there are three marks of a true church. Uh, And you can find this in the Belgic Confession. The first mark being uh, the faithful proclamation of the word. The The second being the proper administration of the sacraments. That is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, And the third mark of a faithful and true church being church discipline, uh, rightly exercising church discipline. And so what I want you to take note of is that the church stops becoming the church the moment she becomes compromised on that first mark. She becomes, when she no longer faithfully proclaims the truth of God's glorious gospel revealed to us in Christ. An apostate church is one that lacks that fundamental mark, the faithful proclamation of the word. Right? And there are many apostate churches all around And this is not a time for us to grow arrogant or judgmental, but but to pray for a renewed faithfulness to God's word in a a time of great pressure, in a time where the deceiver, Antichrist, is seeking to deceive the nations, to deceive the world, and most of all, seeking to deceive you, to deceive the bride of the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, That the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. And so in order for the church to do her job, she has to proclaim boldly the truth of the glorious gospel, which is that Christ has died for needy sinners, that Christ has died for all who repent, that Christ receives those who rest upon him and he gives them new life. And so it doesn't matter what kind of pressure we face from the outside, our charge as the church is to be the church, which means we do not water down the gospel. We do not accommodate for falsehood. We do not compromise. And something that's interesting here is is that when we compromise on the truth of God's word, on the sufficiency of God's word, we actually lose the ability to be compassionate, to be compassionate 
right? The most compassionate thing you can do as a believer is to point someone to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, which sets them free from sin, death, and the power of hell. That's the most compassionate thing you can do. If a church affirms a sinful lifestyle, if the church affirms sexual immorality, discontentment, anger, spiritual complacency, drunkenness, any sin, if the church affirms it, she loses her very identity. Her calling is to proclaim God's truth until the Lord Jesus returns. And if it costs our life, if it costs our life, then so be it. So be it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? So the church must be a prophetic voice in a crooked and perverse generation. And so practically speaking, uh, our, our hope is that Jesus continues to build his church and we must pray for the church. We must earnestly pray for the church. Pray that she would continue to to be a herald of the truth. Pray for the universal church, church the church that is global, worldwide, the, the, the Catholic church, that she would neither stray to the left or to the right, but that she would enter through the narrow gate. We should be praying for our church, for 10th, for our pastors, for our congregation, for the people we know in the pews, We should pray that our church, the church worldwide, would be sanctified by the word, that no falsehood would overtake her, and that God would bring her to the day of completion as he has promised to do. Well, secondly, truth-telling also means for the believer that we must put to death gossip and slander. Truth-telling means we must put to death gossip and slander. Slander and gossip are a cancer upon the church. And all throughout the New Testament, we find warning after warning. We find story after story. We, 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 We see time and time again how gossip and slander can tear apart the very fabric of Christ's church. Speaking poorly about our brothers and sisters in the church behind their back is slander. When we malign their character, we malign their reputation. And we do this all the time. We do it because we want to elevate ourselves. We want to seek first the kingdom of me, myself, and I. And so... When, when others sin against us, when, when someone hurts us, which is inevitable in the church because we're all sinners, the, when someone sins against us, the question we need to answer is simply this. How will we respond? When, when someone sins against us, will we respond by slandering, by maligning their character, by dragging their reputation through the mud, by speaking poorly of them behind their back? When we have a problem with someone, our calling is to go to them in love and to confront them. And Jesus is very clear 
with us about this point. We, we don't practice this well within the church today. I see this pattern all the time. And what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18 is that when someone sins against you, the response is not go and slander them to make yourself feel better. The, the, the biblical godly response is go to them in love and confront them. If they listen to you, you have won your brother or your sister. It's a beautiful thing. It's the, it's the gospel in motion. If we, as the church, as believers, if we take Jesus' words seriously and put them into practice, so many of our issues today in the church would be resolved. Well, how does gossip differ from slander? Slander is maligning your neighbor, whether bearing false witness against them or speaking ill of them. Gossip is equally as dangerous and gossip is when we spread bad things about people that we can't verify. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism reminds us on the the ninth word that that we are to to seek uh, the welfare of our neighbor's name at every opportunity. We are to seek the welfare of our neighbor's name at every opportunity. That means speaking about our neighbor with love and charity and grace, assuming uh, the best of them, not not automatically imputing guilt, not automatically imputing motives, but giving the benefit of the doubt and, and refusing to perpetuate narratives that are unfounded within the church. Right, when we, when we hear someone perpetuating a narrative about someone else, our nature prompts us, our sinful nature prompts us to participate, to get the latest and the greatest on, on some juicy bit of gossip. And yet God's word reminds us that we must put gossip and slander to death. And a real practical way to, to do this is to imagine that when something is said about someone else and they're not present, speak about that person as if they were right there in front of you. Speak about that person as if they were right there, as, as if they could respond to the things that you're saying. Right? That, that, that reminds us that God is everywhere present, that God hears everything we have to say, that that nothing we say can escape his eye. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, the scriptures remind us. If you read James 3, you, 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 will, you will see the kind of weight and the kind of damage that our words can do. They can set an entire forest ablaze. They, they can destroy the church from within. And we've seen this many, many times in in many, many different places, in many, many different churches. Gossip can destroy the church from within. And so rather than using our words to bring death, let us use our words to bring life. Imagine the kind of spirit-filled healing that, that can take place in a church where we constantly measure our tongues and where we are constantly concerned about maintaining our neighbor's reputation, maintaining 
their good character. And number three, we are called to speak the truth in love. We are called to speak the truth in love. In Ephesians chapter four, verse 15, the apostle Paul reminds us that part of growing up into Christ who is our head means speaking the truth in love. And now what I want you to remember here uh, is that for the Christian, we must have both. We must have both truth and love. When you speak the truth without love, you actually hate your neighbor. When you speak the truth without love, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that you are a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, and that all people hear is a a constant ringing, a clanging in the ears when you speak the truth without love. When you don't speak the truth under the pretense of love, you also hate your neighbor. When you don't speak the truth under the guise of love, you also hate your neighbor. You see, Christian love is patient and kind, but Christian love also obeys Jesus in Matthew 18, which I've, which I've referenced, and Christian love is willing to confront a brother or a sister who is in sin. Christian love today is entirely different from the world's definition of love. Right, the world tells us that love is embracing someone for who they are, regardless of their lifestyle, regardless of their life choices. But Christian love is the kind of love that Christ shows to us. It means that we love one another enough to admonish one another, to to tell the truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Christian love means that we do not affirm sin. Christian love means that, means that, that we love one another enough to tell the truth and to do so in a Christ-like way. And speaking the truth in love may cost you your very life, as it did for many early martyrs in the church Think of Stephen the martyr who even as his enemy stoned him to death for confessing the truth. Even as he was dying, as he lay there dying, he said, he spoke in love and he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So we as Christians are called to dedicate our lives as instruments of truth-telling, of confessing the Lord Jesus, of Exposing deeds of darkness and doing so by shining the light of truth in love. Well, lastly, number four, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. I remember as a young boy feeling completely overwhelmed I had been caught in a big string of lies, a whole network of lies lies to the point where I was just telling one lie after another uh, because I didn't want to get caught. And of course, the more I lied, the more I had to cover up for previous lies and it it just uh, got worse and worse and my conscience was eating away at me and I felt this immense weight on my shoulders, this burden, this pressure 
the pressure of sin, the burden of sin. And friends, let me tell you, there is nothing more relieving in this life than being set free from the bondage of sin. I remember when in God's providence I finally got caught and my lies were exposed and the Lord worked in my heart to cause me to repent. Just the the immense weight that was off my shoulders. And this is the kind of freedom that is described for all who confess and believe upon the Lord Jesus. Jesus describes this freedom that comes from the truth in John chapter 8 verses 31 to 32. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And this is the hope of the gospel. This is what we proclaim. This is him whom we proclaim. The truth will set you free. When Jesus becomes the Lord of your life, you experience a newfound kind of freedom that we can't even describe. Words Words fail to capture the the sense of freedom we enjoy, the alleviating sense that the accusation of the deceiver no longer bears down upon me. There is a freedom that comes from being in Christ. And the world promises a freedom that is very different from the freedom that Christ promises you. The world promises you freedom, meaning do what you want, enjoy every pleasure but the great irony is that the freedom promised to you by the world by the accuser it only enslaves you all the more it only enslaves you all the more so truth is of eternal consequence and I would ask you this evening to consider your own heart do you confess the one who is truth incarnate as the Lord of your life because he is the one who will judge every man, woman, boy, and girl. He will, every truth will be laid bare before him on the final day. And so the question is, will we do business with God in this life or in the life to come? And today, he knocks on the door of your heart and he says, harden not your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, Heed his words, repent, and find the freedom. Find the freedom that your soul was created for. The one who was slandered for you, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who endured false witness. He endured false witness from the council of the Sanhedrin so that he could accomplish our salvation, so that when we fall short of God's law, which we will each day and every moment of the next week. As we fall short, we look to him who nailed our sin to the tree so that we might have new life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit would work mightily in us and through us, that we would be vessels and instruments that point to your truth. Lord, forgive us for the ways we fall short. Each one of us are guilty of deceit, slander, lying, gossip. Lord, we pray that 
We would not look to our own righteousness, but remember that you are the righteous one. Christ has satisfied the righteous requirement of the law. And so we rest in that. But we who love you desire to keep your commandments. We who love you desire to walk in the paths that you have given to us. And so we pray that as we go forth from your sanctuary this evening, we would be emboldened to proclaim your truth, to live out your truth, and to testify to the truth incarnate. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.